You're listening to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Amir Tibon. And I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer. Hi, Alison. Good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. On today's show, we'll talk about the biggest political debate happening in Israel right now, uh, one that has led in recent weeks to huge demonstrations in the streets. We just saw hundreds of thousands of people this weekend protest in Tel Aviv and other cities. And it's all about the fate of the Israeli judicial system. The government has a plan to significantly weaken the Supreme Court and give the politicians control over the appointments of judges. Later on the show, we'll speak with one of the leaders of the protest movement. She was also involved in the protests against Prime Minister Netanyahu in 2020 that eventually led to his fall. What this protest has in common with the previous demonstrations. But first of all, we are going to speak with attorney Ellen Dershowitz, a leading legal scholar, uh, a supporter of Israel and someone who has close ties to Prime Minister Netanyahu, but also an opponent of this plan to weaken the Israeli Supreme Court. He's concerned that this will harm Israel's international standing and also take away fundamental rights from the citizens of Israel. Hello, Ellen Dershowitz. My first question to you has to do with the issue of the override clause, basically this idea that the government will have the ability to overrule decisions by the Supreme Court. You came out against it in several interviews in the last few weeks, um, and yet we see that the, right now in the government's plan, it remains as it is, just 61 members of Knesset, the smallest possible majority, could overrule any Supreme Court decision. Why do you think that's a bad idea for Israeli democracy? It's a very bad idea to deny the Supreme Court the final word on issues of civil liberties, equality, and human rights. I have no problem with overriding uh, political decisions, such as who can serve as a government official, uh, or whether the gas deal in Lebanon uh, is legal, I have no problem with overriding those kinds of decisions. Uh, my problem is with trying to override decisions about uh, equality. Let me give you an example. Um, ben Gavir suggested, now he may have taken it back, but he suggested that maybe different rules of engagement should be permitted for shooting at rock throwers, depending on whether they're Israeli or Palestinian. Uh, that is an outrageous violation of equal protection, which no international court would ever tolerate. And the Supreme Court of Israel would strike that down. And the Knesset should have no power to override that kind of a basic equality decision or decisions involving free speech. So I make a sharp distinction between overriding decisions which are essentially economic or political or based on reasonableness and decisions that go to the heart, the heart of what a country is when it believes in liberty and due process and the rule of law. That's very interesting because most of the discourse here in Israel in recent weeks has been about the number of votes that will be necessary for the override clause. Basically, the government wants it to be 61, the smallest possible majority. And some people who oppose this plan but do support a softer, a more moderate and balanced reform in the legal system, say, if you have an override clause of 65 or 70 votes that basically would require cooperation with the opposition, we can live with that. But what you're saying is the distinction should be different. It's not necessarily the number, it's the issues that the override clause is relevant for. 
Yeah, let me give you an example. In the United States, we have a First Amendment. And the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion. Now, 90% of Americans would like to see Christianity established as the national religion of America. And uh, yet the Constitution says no. So no number of votes should be able to accomplish that. Now, Israel doesn't have a written constitution, but like England, it has a constitutional structure. And that constitutional structure involves issues like equality and like due process. Uh, so, for example, if the Knesset were to rule that uh, certain people can't have a trial, um, uh, Palestinians, or that uh, you have a different uh, a degree of punishment uh, based on uh, background or distinguishing between a Sephardic Jews and, and Ashkenazi Jews, those shouldn't ever be able to be overwritten, even by 119 to 1. Yet there are others that should be easily overridden uh, because they're basically political economic decisions that the majority should rule. So I think you need a balanced, calibrated compromise where the role of the Supreme Court is far more a role of last resort when it comes to some fundamental basic rights than when it comes to issues that are uh, arguably the subject more of majoritarian rule. Let me make one other point about that. This is not about democracy. This is about liberty and rights. Uh, an override clause, 61 to 59, is not undemocratic. It vests the control in the majority. But democracies can become tyrannies. And uh, that's why, even in democracies, the majority doesn't always control. The majority is subject to the rule of law. And the rule of law is applied by the courts, by the Supreme Court. That's why I sharply distinguish uh, between types of decisions that the Knesset is entitled to overrule and types of decisions that the Supreme Court can make as a, as a court of last resort. The passion with which you're making this argument, uh, which goes against the stand of Benjamin Netanyahu, someone that I know you've had a close relationship with, leads me to believe that as a strong advocate for the state of Israel in the United States and internationally, you believe that these changes would do great damage to uh, Israel's image and possibly uh, damage its standing in uh, international courts. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's my secondary concern. My secondary concern is Israel's image and its standing. I, for years, said Israel should always do the right thing, even if it means being condemned by the international uh, uh, community. Um, certainly, Israel has the right to protect itself against aggression, even if that means attacked by the international community. I think this would be bad for Israel. That's the primary reason I'm against it. But I'm also, as an advocate for Israel in international fora on university campuses, it will make my job and the job of others who defend Israel far more difficult because the Israeli Supreme Court has been the Iron Dome, the legal Iron Dome. When the International Criminal Court wanted to investigate Israel, I called the prosecutor um, and, and we talked about uh, complementarity. And I helped, I think, persuade the first prosecutor that complementarity uh, precludes the uh, International Criminal Court from having jurisdiction over Israel because Israel's Supreme Court does the job and it does it well. 
Have you made these arguments to uh, our prime minister personally? And uh, if so, uh, what was his response? I did. I had a long opportunity to talk to him. Uh, Bibi and I have been friends uh, for half a century, and we've been arguing for half a century. Uh, one of our bases of friendship is we're totally honest with each other. And we often agree. We agree often on national security issues on Iran. Uh, and we often disagree. And here we disagreed. And the prime minister kept responding over and over again by saying what he wants was balance. I think he used the word balance six times in our uh, conversation. He wants balance. And I urged him that balance can be achieved by allowing override in certain areas, but not in other areas. And, and the areas that override should be permitted in are, I think, the areas that this government and, and, and Benjamin Netanyahu most care about. Uh, I think override is, is permissible when the Supreme Court says that Arya Derry should not be able to serve as a minister. That's an appropriate ground for override. So what I was trying to persuade the prime minister in his quest for balance is that compromise is in order. There are certain areas there is no compromise on basic fundamental areas of human rights, free speech, due process, there's no room for compromise. The Supreme Court must have the last word because the rule of law must prevail, and the Supreme Court is the institution that imposes the rule of law on majoritarian preferences. Another component of this uh, legal uh, overhaul um, is the idea that the government would have much more power over the selection of judges. Today in Israel, there is a committee where you have uh, basically equal powers to the politicians, the judges, and the lawyers bar. Uh, and I have to say this committee has come under a lot of criticism over the years. And I personally agree that there needs to be some change there. But the version that the government is promoting right now would give basically absolute power to the government over the selection of judges. What do you think about that suggestion? It would be a terrible mistake. It would emulate the United States. And a lot of the proponents say, see, that's how the United States does it. The president nominates and the Senate confers. The United States process has been an absolute disaster. It's turned the entire Supreme Court into a political institution, and the appointment process has become very politicized. Think of what happened to a man named Merrick Garland, who's now the attorney general. Uh, uh, president Obama nominated him. He was extraordinarily qualified a former judge, a former student at Harvard Law School, and the Senate, controlled by the Republicans, wouldn't even give him a hearing, claiming that you don't nominate a justice to the Supreme Court within a year of the election. And then when Trump became president and he nominated Justice Barrett to the Supreme Court just weeks before the election, the Republicans, in a complete political about-face, said, whoops, no, no, we're sorry, uh, you can nominate the justice now. And everything is political in the United States. The Supreme Court has lost credibility. It has become a political institution. Please don't borrow the failure of the United States. If you want to borrow successes, fine. But don't borrow America's failures. And the process of political appointment in the United States has been a disaster for Americans. And the Israeli system would have even less of a check on it than the American system because there's no distinction here really in power between the executive and the uh, legislative. That's right. In the United States, we have a tri uh, system of separation of powers and checks and balances. Israel, like England, has a unitary, uh, England has a bicameral legislature, but Israel has a unicameral legislature which controls everything. And 
it needs to have checks and balances. Uh, and and check borrow that from America. Borrow our system of checks and balances from America, where the judiciary does have a power to check on the executive and legislative branches. That has worked efficiently. The method of selecting justices in America is a disaster. And Israel has a far better process. If you want to tinker with it, fine. But the decision should not be political. It should be based on the quality of justice. Look, I've known almost all the justices of the Supreme Court since 1960s. And the justices of the Supreme Court have been, for the most part, superbly qualified. They've been among the best justices in the world. The American Supreme Court justices recognize that. The British Supreme Court justices recognize that. So the process of picking justices in Israel is not broken, and it should not be broken by an attempt to fix it. You know, if you want to change some procedures and some mechanisms, if you want to have hearings, that's okay, although I think hearings have been a failure in America. The great justices who were appointed in America were appointed without a hearing, and over the past uh, half a century has gotten worse and worse and worse, and it's, I think, one of the worst processes in the world today in the United States of selecting justices. The British system is better, the Canadian system is better, and the Israeli system is far, far better. How do you explain Netanyahu's own change on this issue? I remember interviews with him from about a decade ago where he speaks proudly about defending the Supreme Court from initiatives coming from the far right to weaken it. And uh, he, he said that the Supreme Court is one of the most important uh, components of Israeli democracy and that he will always defend its uh, independence. What happened? Well, he was right then and he's wrong now. Uh, what's happened is that he needed to put together a government. And in order to put together the government, he had to make compromises. He felt, and I think he was wrong, that putting together the government was more important than preserving the integrity of the judiciary. Uh, I had meetings with, with the Benjamin Netanyahu about this very issue um, years ago, and he was always one of the staunchest supporters of the, the Supreme Court. I, I am disappointed that uh, my dear friend, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, has weakened his support. Uh, now, this hasn't happened yet, And Netanyahu has an ability sometimes to bring uh, the right wing closer to the center. He will do that on other issues. I hope he does that on this issue as well, but I'm not as optimistic. So you don't agree with the critics here who uh, attribute his change of, uh, of position on this issue to the fact that he's under criminal trial and has a personal interest in weakening the judiciary? It's much more indirect. I think because he's under criminal investigation uh, or indictment, He's had to coalition with this government. Had the deal been struck, had he been able to plea bargain and say plead guilty to uh, a non-moral offense and, and pay uh, fines, uh, then I think many gods would have joined the government or others might have joined the government. So there's an indirect causal relationship between his uh, indictment, which I don't think is a, a proper indictment. I have argued right from the beginning that The Israeli law is too unclear about these issues, about how much is too much when you take uh, champagne and jewelry and um, whatever else and, and cigars. And I think the uh, quid pro quo argument in the other case is extremely weak. So I think an extraordinarily weak indictment uh, against the prime minister has contributed to this extreme right wing government. And that's a tragedy. 
and and the fault for it uh, lies with many many people. But I don't see a simple relationship between the um, fact that he's under indictment and the need for his belief in the need for judicial reform. I think it's much more a function of trying to keep his coalition together. Do you think if more people like you were supporters of Israel and uh, also have uh, ties to the prime minister himself would speak up right now, that could perhaps make a difference in the final result? Because I agree with you that this is an issue that is still uh, not finalized. Um, and we're seeing the huge demonstrations here in Israel and the fight in the Knesset. Um, and so I'm wondering if you think that more voices like yourself coming from outside the country, from people who support it, could also have an impact. I hope so. I've been criticized uh, as an outsider. People say to me, stick to America, try to reform America. Uh, why are you butting into uh, Israel? Because I love Israel. And let me make one other point clear. I will continue to defend Israel in international courts on college campuses, regardless of whether this ill-advised uh, judicial reform is passed. I do not take the same position that some American leaders have taken, that my support for Israel is conditional. No, my support for Israel will not change if this is done. It will just make it much harder to do my job and to do the job that others uh, are trying to do to defend Israel. So I will continue to speak out. If I were an Israeli, uh, I would be attending some of these uh, protests, limiting my protests to the judicial reform, not Uh, making broad protests about the government. There, I don't think I have a right to try to undo uh, uh, what, uh, what Israel vo Israeli voters uh, voted for. Uh, but I do think on the issue of judicial reform, where I am an expert and where my advice has been sought by the Israeli government over the years uh, and uh, where I've defended Israel, I do think I have an obligation uh, to speak out, and I will continue to speak out as long as there's any possibility of moderating these reforms. Ellen Dershowitz, thank you so much for speaking with us. This was a very interesting conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed your questions very much. Next, we'll hear from Shikma Bressler, one of the leaders of Israel's current protest movement. Hello, Shikma. Hello. Shikma, you're in a good position to compare the development, the leadership, and the momentum of these current protests to the Black Flags and the Balfour protests, the movement that brought tens of thousands of people to Jerusalem and created the momentum that led to the election where Netanyahu was ousted. How are these protests similar and how are they different from what happened at Balfour? Is one a continuation of the other one? I think that the, the current activity certainly depends on what happened before I, I came to realize that activities does not start, you know, on a big scale out of nowhere. So they have to depend on each other and it grows uh, and, uh, and you need someone in the street to, to show the people that, uh, that there are things that can be done in order to make a change. Shikma, I want to ask you a bit about the protests we've seen in the last three weeks. Three weeks ago, it started with a Saturday night uh, demonstration at uh, Habima where I think there were maybe 5,000 people What did you think when you saw that turnout, when the first demonstration happened? It was just a few thousands of people back then. So one has to understand the dynamics of protests. They don't start out of nowhere. You need the first five to bring on the, the first hundreds, and then the five thousands, and then it, it, will, it will grow up. So, uh, of course, everyone wants to start with a million protesters in the street, but it simply doesn't happen. 
in Israel at least. I was happy seeing that they evolve and move forward. And so I wasn't frustrated back then. And uh, I also have to say that I don't think that what, what we see now is enough. The next week it grew to 80,000 already. And then the following week, the, the demonstration we saw this weekend, 130, something 150,000. You think there's more room to grow? I actually think that it's not about the numbers. If we just keep growing and be more and more people, uh, but not doing anything which is different than just protesting and standing wherever we stand, it's not going to be enough, right? Because people talk about big demonstrations for one, two days, and then something else happens and, and, and it goes out of, of, uh, of the news. So we really have to make sure that this time uh, people do understand that just demonstrating is not enough. We have to be a lot more uh, creative and doing much more aggressive acts. Like what? So I'm talking about what you see, for instance, today. So you see the high-tech people striking, and you see uh, hundreds of academia people going out, saying out loud that uh, academia cannot live in a non-democratic uh, country. We should see how to take into account the fact that about 70 to 80 percent of the taxes in Israel are paid by people who support the protest. We need to understand how to make a use out of it. So far, the protests have been extremely peaceful. There have been no violence from the protesters. So far, minimal violence from uh, the police. And despite the threats from National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, there haven't been water cannons being used to disperse crowds that are blocking streets. Uh, do you think this is going to last? Do you think they're going to stay so peaceful even if they grow in number? It's hard to tell. I think that we do know that uh, if you look at the uh, research about uh, protests and demonstrations, you see that violent acts do not result in what the protesters want. So in this respect, it's good that no violence is uh, seen out there. I think that from the government side, they understand that if they go violent against the uh, protesters, it will only make the um, demonstration grow larger. So they are now being, uh, they are playing it uh, to some extent wiser than what they did before in the past four days. But uh, as protesters and as those who want to make change in the country, we need to make sure that, uh, that we become more effective, more aggressive without breaking any law, but uh, really take advantage of our strengths. And we have tons of them. We just never needed to use them, but uh, we really are certain about it. So when you talk, for example, about the issue of uh, taxation in Israel, it's true That, for example, the high-tech sector that uh, we saw going on strike on Tuesday is responsible for about 25% of the Israeli uh, tax uh, incomes. Um, that in general, uh, municipalities in Israel that are more affluent and pay more taxes uh, voted more for the center-left uh, block in this election. But do you really see hundreds of thousands of Israelis taking active measures to avoid the uh, tax payments in protest over these plans to weaken the legal system? Everything that is going on right now is, uh, to some extent, new, both from what the side of what the government is doing and also how the, uh, the citizens and the protesters react. So we learn on the fly, but we learn quickly, and uh, we will find out more effective ways to act upon. And I think that uh, if we provide people with ideas of what can be done, and if people get organized, then, then this protest can and should become very, very, very effective. What's the goal at the end of all of this? Because the government has a solid majority in the Knesset, 64 seats. Um, I personally find it hard to believe that they will 
uh, withdraw from this uh, plan to, to weaken the judicial system. Are you seeking some kind of a softening of the reform, some kind of a compromise agreement? Or do you think that you should go all the way in the hope of getting them to cancel it altogether? So I think, um, first of all, what the protesters, at least myself, what we want to do right now is to give those people who still could have a saying, let's say the Supreme Court and so on, they should know that they are being very strongly supported by the core groups of Israel. They have not said uh, the last word yet. The second thing for the future, I think that it does make sense to make all kinds of reforms, basically in every system in Israel, because all of them have been neglected for so many years. However, I don't think that the reform in the judicial system, as you said, can be done when the person uh, leading this uh, reform is being accused and is currently uh, facing severe charges. It just doesn't work together. The critics say that uh, these rallies are representing the side that lost an election. They had their chance at the polls, they voted, and they lost. Do you see any signs uh, among the protesters at the demonstrations who might be crossing uh, party lines, who might have voted for this coalition, who might have even supported Netanyahu, but are now hesitating at some of the steps that the government is taking in the judicial reform? Or does it seem pretty much like a rally of the opposition? First of all, uh, the polls uh, show that the majority of the people in Israel do not support these acts against the Supreme Court, these acts in favor of Derry, for instance, and so on. So if we can uh, judge by the polls and uh, the majority of the Israelis do not support that, just, you know, in the last couple of days, I myself got two phone calls from people who voted for the Likud party who really wants to come and speak on the on the stage in, in the next uh, large protest in Tel Aviv. Last question. We have, uh, obviously, a local listenership in Israel of people who look for quality English language content on what's happening here. Uh, but many of our listeners are also abroad in the United States and other countries. Uh, what message do you want to send to those listeners about this protest movement and what's happening right now in Israel? I, I think that people abroad should understand that... Uh, What, we, what is going on in Israel now is unbelievably similar to what Hungary and Poland went uh, ahead of us. It's almost written by the same author. It's a similar book. And Israel cannot become the next Hungary. It cannot become the next Poland. This is what we are fighting against. This is what I think now many, many, many people understand. And uh, the more Uh, people understand that outside of Israel as well, the more pressure that is being put from abroad on the government here in Israel will assist us to really prevent this unbelievable and unawful things uh, from happening in Israel. Shikma Bressler, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you, guys. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you, Alison. Thanks, Amir. And thanks to Nahara Malkin, our producer and editor. We'll be back again next week. And until then... Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>